I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Drew Dudley. He has bipolar, struggled with alcoholism, was morbidly obese, and teaches us how to be better humans. Let's talk about it. Sweet. Hey, Drew. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty awesome, this except is death to runners. Yeah, right. Death to runners. So, so for anyone listening, it is now the next day. While we're <laughs> in Toronto. We recorded five episodes yesterday. We're still in the November offices, uh, and it's the next day, and we're, I think, just as, maybe not bride, but I know Tay and I are just as hungover. Did you, as we were yesterday. Did you guys? We were on a party limo last night stupid. Uh, with... A couple of good friends of ours, and How did that, even that escalated quickly. Anyway, just, it's Sunday, and there's a marathon happening in the city, so <laughs> we're just running. Are, are you glad that you're not that you're not out running the marathon, though? Oh God, I am very glad about that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know so that? Glad. So, Movember's actually moving uh, their office from here to the corner of uh, Bathurst and uh, a street that starts with the R, the letter R. Right. Cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. But they're they're actually they're putting it into like a house. And uh, the bottom level, the main level is going to be a barber shop and a coffee shop. <laughs> and then the upstairs will be the offices and boardroom. And they're doing that so that they can like encourage people to come in, get their haircut, have a cup of coffee and chat about men's health because they find that like this environment right here is, is not conducive to have like people walking in and talking about mm. uh, men's health, prostate cancer and other things yeah. like that. So Even I was though we're like, about to talk about men's health in here. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying. You ruined but, that one, Taylor. Yeah, fuck I, you, Taylor. But I, but I don't feel much like doing it. That's, yeah. I think our point is that if I was in a barbershop right now, I'd clearly be very excited to do that. Yeah, like, let's t- all talk about our balls, right? If you, had a, if you had a 65-year-old man giving you a straight razor shave... And while he was giving you a prostate exam... He's like, so I'm just great. gonna, I'm just gonna be tra- uh, trimming. <laughs> yeah, because anything you get good at, you were once bad at. Is the problem, right? <laughs> Lift your chin and relax your rectum. <laughs> no, no, the other way around. The other way. Oh, God. I love that point. How did you get good at that? Yeah, I've always wondered that. Like yeah. everything that you're good at, at one point you, you were not. Yeah. And so every time I see people do, like I go to Cirque du Soleil, and I'm just like, how, how did you do that? <laughs> like yeah. at some point, you must have cracked every bone in your body. Dude, that's yeah. such a Fascinating right. point. I, te- I teach. I, I work with kids a lot. I mean, uh, we're all we all teach yoga uh, as a as a job at home, and uh, I work with kids a lot in schools. And that is like the fundamental concept that I try to to, to just drive into them is like you have to start somewhere with what you will like or what you want to become. Uh, proficient at like you you can't expect I can't ask you to do something and you can't get down on yourself because you tried it the first time and 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 fucking fucking sucked at it like 
it's such te- a we teach them that though, right? Like think about school. You basically school teaches you that you start with one hundred percent, and every mistake you make, you lose points. Mm. So wow. like, like think about yeah. it. You, get a, you got a midterm worth twenty, you get fifty on it. I'm going to do math <coughs> here on a Sunday morning. You start with good luck, and that means that you've lost ten points forever. And you can never yeah, get them back. Like yeah. once you've lost the 10, they're gone. And I've, I thought, what a shitty, what a shitty lesson to give kids. Because life does not work like that. No, right. Like does all. not work like, anyone who's been in a serious long-term relationship knows you can earn <clears throat> the points back. Right. Slowly with a great deal of effort. <laughs> but it basically teaches you who gives a shit where you are at this given moment. It's how few mistakes you made along the way. Imagine, if, every, imagine okay. if everybody was born a CEO. And like we slowly got demoted through our life. Like huh, you fucked up, so now you're now you're the vice president. I'm the janitor. I'm going to steal it. that. Actually, it's uh, it's the inverse Peter principle. I like that very. very that's a good idea. Everyone just starts a CEO, and you're like, oh man, sorry, that deal did not go well. You're you're now vice president of human resources. And then right now, there's a whole bunch of EPHRs being like, dick. Yeah, you. And then every every company is is funda- fundamentally run on all. Of the people that failed the most. I like that. <laughs> I heard like, that. I heard that at NASA, they train everybody, no matter what your your job is in the building. They train everybody to say that I help send rockets to space. Yeah. So even the janitor, uh, at the janitors probably uh, say like, yeah, my job is sending sending rockets into space. Did Hadfield tell you that? Uh, no, he didn't. You hear that? I, I heard it somewhere. Once before, I don't know. I have it's no a, credible source. But. It actually comes from, an, I think, an old story about JFK after he made the, the proclamation that within 10 years we'll put a man on the moon. Uh-huh. And very shortly after, he went to NASA <laughs> and asked the janitor, what do you do here, sir? And apparently the janitor said to him, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. Oh. And people just love the story. Yeah. And so it became, well, even if that's a crock, which sometimes happens, uh, let's actually make that true. Yeah. And I kind of like that. It's, it's one of those stories like the one of... Um, I heard one once about a guy, an employee was sitting in the, it's one of those stories that who knows what ever happened, but he's sitting in the cafeteria late, late at night, and he sees the CEO walk in, and all the way across the cafeteria is some crap on the table that someone left. The CEO stops, walks all the way across, grabs the garbage, and then throws it out. And the guy said, like, the question is, did the guy go and throw out the garbage because he's the CEO, or is he the CEO because he's the type of guy who walks all the way across the room to throw out the garbage? And who knows if that ever happened, but right. it doesn't matter because the point is what lands, right? Right, so, yeah. Um, and so here we are while waxing poetic after starting the podcast. <laughs> you know who I hate? Dedicated runner. runner. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever explain why? Oh, yeah, because there's a marathon going on. Right, there's, there's a, a marathon. marathon. There's, there's Toronto marathon, marathon this marathon. morning, and we woke up, and we're going down the, uh, go, driving down whatever road we are in Toronto. I have no idea my way around Toronto. <laughs> and, uh, and we're like... Oh yeah, we just need ten minutes to get from uh, Jeff's place to the Movember offices, and, and then the dawn of realization that every major road in Toronto is, is closed in some way, shape, or form, and that we're going to be late. Yeah. So, Drew, like these, I, I guess, come a couple of these stories that we started off this morning are are uh, stories that are associated around around leadership, and I and I know that you. Uh, you focus quite a bit on on leadership, correct? Yeah. yeah so what? What? Yeah. What is what is it exactly that you do? Oh God, I knew that question was coming at some point. <laughs> you, you know, I used to run. Uh, it's weird that I answered that question with what I used to do. Uh, just to set context, I used to run the leadership <clears throat> development program at the University of Toronto, and then about five, gosh, six years ago now, 
I left to start doing consulting for organizations on how to create leadership development programming. Mm. So how to create it, how to supplement it, how to make it better. And shortly after I did that, I ended up doing or being invited to do a TED talk here or TEDx talk here in Toronto. And that went, it, it just so happened the guy who was speaking at the end of the day named Neil Pashrika, he wrote a book called The Book of Awesome. He yeah, was speaking, yeah, he was yeah. speaking at the end of the day. His agents were in the audience to see him speak and uh, saw me, you know, five hours earlier and ended up grabbing me and saying, you want to do this for a living? And I was doing it for free. So yeah, basically like, hey, you want to, you know, hang out and, and uh, do podcasts and we'll just pay you a, a whole boatload of money for it. Uh, oh, yeah, people you're like, yeah, nice. that works pretty well, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, that happened to me. Uh, and sometimes I, you don't even realize at the time, you're like, this can't possibly work out. And that yeah. was six years ago. So, you know, the consulting never really happened as much as I, I, I started sharing stories about approaches to leadership, a particular approach to leadership that I believe really strongly in. Because when you work with young people, you're working with people who, as a general, actually don't have a ton of control over their lives, or they think they don't. Like for most of the 20 years of your life, everything you do is evaluated by somebody else, right? You got to please a teacher, you got to please a professor, and you got to please your parents. And so I'm working with people who just don't see leadership as part of who they are. One day, you know, please enough people, one day you get to be a leader. Mm. And now what I do is I share uh, an approach for both organizations and individuals that there's a type of leadership to which we can all aspire. There's a, a, a type of leadership of which all of us are completely capable if we choose to do so. Mm. And so, you know, right now I'm on an extended speaking tour for the last five years. And I run a, a company, it's weird, you say this is the next day when you kicked it up. I actually uh, run a company now called Day One Leadership. The idea that leadership ultimately is figuring out how to lead today and then doing that every day. It's the same way, like I, I, uh, I'm an AA and one of the, the tenets there is if you don't want to drink for the rest of your life, choose not to have a drink today. And it's very much the same way about almost anything in your life. Mm. If you want something down the road, figure out what actual actions you got to do today and then do it. And I teach individuals and organizations to do that. Uh, but a, a big part of it was from this leadership development background that I came from. And I have no idea how I end up doing what I do. It is. <laughs> I love that, though. Isn't that the coolest thing? When like you just you, fall into it. You just wake it. up and you're pinching yourself one day going, holy fuck, I'm doing this. Like, yeah. And never, I'm sure 10 years ago, you never, ever would have imagined being, you know, being where you are doing that. I mean, imagined it probably. Like, imagined it. But that's the thing. It would be a dream. Right? Yeah, it's just right, sort of right, like, right, right. I joke today, like, ten, if you said 10 years from now and I'm married to Jennifer Lawrence, you could be like, 10 years ago, did you imagine? I'm like, yeah. 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 <laughs> every every yeah. night. Yeah. Around, around <clears throat> a little inappropriately frequently. Yeah. yeah. So. We got we to gotta get Jennifer Lawrence in here because that's the second or third time that I've heard that name dropped in the past... 30 minutes. I think so. Drew's, She's Drew's a very talented actress. <laughs> I, I believe Drew's claimed uh, rights on her phone number, home phone number. If anybody has it, uh, send it through to us and we'll that forward would be it on to Drew. Amazing. Well, no, I, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like Jennifer to enjoy her 20s um, because, I mean, it's a great time of life. You should have a great time because once we meet, um, I'm wonderful. And, and, and the love we will have, I think, will be almost obsessive. And I, I don't want to deny the world her talent because right. I think she'll want to hang out with me so much 
that she just won't have time to do <laughs> She'll movie. naturally abandon her act- acting career. Yeah, I will be her David O. Russell, but in a romantic sense. And so uh, I don't want to deny that to the world. But right. thank you. I right. appreciate it. If any, uh, that being said, if anyone out there, like, I think we'd have a wonderful coffee together. So, uh, so we were. I'm sure she's listening. So you know, she'll, she'll get to us. Right. So, so we were talking. Uh, I don't think that we, I don't think that the mics were rolling when you talked about that, but you talked, you, you just mentioned briefly, uh, almost in passing in a joking manner, which is what we like to do here. Alcoholism. Yeah. Morbid obesity. Yes. And bipolar. bipolar. Oh yeah. Well you said, I said, I don't know why I'm here. Which do you want to talk about? <laughs> the, the bipolar, the alcoholism or the morbid obesity. So, uh, the, like, which do you want to roll with? Let's, first? Let's, well, let's, I think let's dive into the bipolar. I'm really curious to know. So, uh, what are you, bipolar one or two? Uh, I'm bipolar two. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, hopefully. <clears throat> because that's the thing about bipolar, right, is that they can say this is what you are now, and this mm. is what's so frustrating for anyone living with mental illness, and let's face it, for the people who love them, mm-hmm. is that whatever you are today and whatever you're doing to deal with it today, tomorrow could be something entirely different. Mm-hmm. And so it's it, this, it, diseases of any kind, illness of any kind, sickness of any kind, uh, one of the things I'm quickly discovering as I spend more and more time uh, with people of different illnesses and challenges is that the most frustrating, like one of the big liberations for a lot of people is once you get it named, like especially like mental illness, mm-hmm. when people like you go and you find out, oh, you're bipolar, that people would be like, oh, that must be terrible. But you'll find for a lot yeah, of people. We hear that a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I just needed to know what the hell it was. Yeah. Right? Especially oh, since yeah. Friend, it takes so long. Our friend or, Hannah listens to the podcast and she has had this like, these brain issues for the longest time. Right. No one could, no one knew why she was having these, these, these brain issues. And, uh, and she listened to the lupus episode, which was like the most, like it was the most hypochondriac inducing episode ever because, uh, Lisa was common, common, very common symptoms. Yeah, exactly. But she listened to that episode and she goes, holy shit, there's a lot of bells ringing here. Uh And she went to her doctor and, uh, Dude, fucking turns out she has lupus. Really? And there was this sense, you know, we were messaging back and forth, and she was like, I have lupus. Yeah. I I have lupus. I know now. I know why I had this shit going on in my head. Like, it's lupus. Thank the Lord. (laughs) There's this, like, huge sense of relief for her just to to be like, we we fucking figured it out. And, and it's weird to think of that word would ever be a relief. Like they, they actually, uh, apparently there was a conference years ago of linguists and uh, they wanted to, to identify the most melodic word in the English language. Mm. Like what is the most beautiful to hear? And apparently it's syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that, that word rolls off the tongue really so does. nicely. It and, feels really good saying it And too. context is king, syphilis. obviously, because I'm trying to think of a moment where I'm like, Syphilis, and the first thing I'm sorry, you have syphilis. <laughs> I'm just sort of like, wow, that sounded great. Have you guys, have you guys ever seen the movie Waiting? Uh, uh, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, they're all working in a, a oh, bunch yeah, of friends yeah, yeah. working in that's a restaurant. Like the goat in the right, that's exactly. All that came from, and, right? and, and there's a there's a there's a scene where they're just panning across the restaurant and basically giving an overview of like the vibe of the restaurant and all the different personalities that are sitting down. Yeah, and eating. establishing shot. Right, and and. <laughs> <laughs> Suck a dick, Brad. So, so they're as they're panning across the. It's like you know chatter in the chatter in the restaurant, and then it, it pans to the 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 table that's closest to the camera, and he goes. 
huh, you know what I, you know what name I really like? Chlamydia. I want to, I want to name my daughter Chlamydia. Too bad it's a venereal, a venereal <laughs> disease. Chlamydia is also an, an, a one that flows off the tongue very nicely. I feel like a lot of the STDs chlamydia, as they, they chlamydia just, they sound nice. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> this, this derailed real hard, real quick. <laughs> but it is, yeah, it was. It's almost like a relief, and so because now you have a name for it. But mm-hmm. that's that's the challenge. Say my bipolar one or two. Well, when I was diagnosed, I'm bipolar two. And that's almost a relief because it's almost as if the doctors create the worst <clears throat> version so that the vast majority of people can be told, well, you've got this uh, and it could kill you. But there is a worse version that you don't have because uh, that would almost <laughs> definitely kill you. Silver lining. Yeah. And so really, I'm, I'm, but there are moments in my life since I've had that diagnosis where you start to worry, oh, is it? Is it that seemed like a more bipolar one type episode? And, and just so if people don't know, the the main difference between the two is that um, bipolar two is characterized by sort of swinging unpredictably and not necessarily quickly. That's one thing I don't like about the show Homeland is mm. that they they show that these swings are happening in you know half an hour. And if you're right. swinging back and forth between ups and downs in half an hour, you have a very severe cycle going on. Yeah, there's a name to that too, right? What's the, uh, do, you, do you know the term of that? Rapid cycling. Rapid actually, cycling. Yeah. We had someone actually email us a couple days ago and they are like, yeah, I have rapid cycling bipolar. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's, that's... That sounds really intense. And it is intense, and that's when things are very dangerous. It <laughs> yeah. tends not to go on for long periods of time. Like, right. if, if, if you're going through rapid cycling, something has kicked up that, and things are really serious. Okay. Not that it's not in other cases, but as we say, there's always a scale to it. <laughs> right. But the idea is that it's one of the problems. Bipolar is going in waves almost back and forth between two different mental states. Uh, depression, which there's been lots of discussion on, and you know, how do you describe depression? I always said it's like walking through a spider web um, of despair. Because you know, like when you walk through a spider web, that horrible feeling, and you know it's not you, and yeah. you know it's not part of you, yeah. but it's, it's just like it sinks into your skin, yeah. and you right? You can't yeah. quite grab it to no. pull it off. Like no. it, oh, it, it feels like it's everywhere. But you just can't get it. But you can't get it. It's so fun. That's such a fucking perfect example of that. And and, well, trust me, man, if you have depression, you spend way too much time trying to articulate how the hell to explain it to other people. Oh, it's sadness. Look, man, like depression is to sadness. I always say like Bieber is to Dylan, right? Like it's not the same realm. Um, Whether you like either one of them, you can recognize that there's a different depth to the two things. So so that's what I, I really think that when you talk about depression, it's basically like, imagine a spider web of every piece of anger and hatred and darkness and despair and just you feel like crap like that worst hangover you've ever had like Mm. it just wraps itself around you Mm -hmm. that's the one end and the other is is this mania which i i was not familiar with because you know manic depression which is what you know they used to call and some people still do bipolar i just thought you meant you were like in like intensely depressed like with an almost manic yeah Mm -hmm. and no manic depression refers to the fact that there's two sides to the disease and mania in its truest form the idea of of bipolar one is true mania which is you tend you actually are basically losing concept with or contact with reality Mm -hmm. that you can Hallucinate. You're seeing things that aren't necessarily there. You completely lose control. And mania can be extremely dangerous because you can do, you know, the, the concept of, you know, you're on LSD and you think you yeah. can fly. Yeah. Mania is in some ways almost that severe. And what's it called again right before? It's hypermania? It's hypomania. Like right, hypomania. Yeah. That's right before right mania before. mania. And that's bipolar too, right? That's you bipolar you don't, too. You don't yeah. reach mania. That's it. So imagine a, a continue on. One side <laughs> is mania where you've lost touch with reality. You'll take 
incredibly dangerous risks. You may not even know who you are, where yeah. you are. The other side is depression. Now, there is a almost like a, a category before true mania. They call it hypomania, mm -hmm. where you still have these elevated, because mania is in many ways an elevated sense of, of mental acuity. Yeah. Right? Like, we, had a, we had a guest on very early in, in, our, in our existence as a podcast, uh, Nadine, and she had bipolar too. Oh, okay. And uh, she, the way she kind of described it was, uh, it's kind of like someone on ecstasy. Like they're just, they're just like, they're, everything is, is almost, almost as if it's something, I think I said, it sounds like you're, it sounds like ecstasy when she was describing it, but it, it, to me, it seems like something that, um, like, I feel like I would love to be in a hypomanic, manic, hypomanic yeah, hypomanic, state. Yeah. I feel like it, like that's where I would be really productive would, and like, yeah, like I would, like that's my that's my jam. Like, where can I, I go and get some of that? How can I get some of that hypomania? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it, you you hit it right on the head, <clears> man. Because <throat> like the thing is with, uh, with uh, bipolar too is the way it tends to manifest is that when you're young, it's the manic side that tends to be most frequent, and the depression tends to become more pronounced in your twenties right. and later. So what happens is a lot of the students that are being patted on the back and told that they're the best. Mm -hmm. You know, these driven 99, involved in everything, never sleep, <clears throat> like rock stars that are getting to Harvard and Princeton. Well, th this could very well be the early stages of, of bipolar because yeah. they're not dealing with the depression side. Mm -hmm. I, I always said it was kind of like, um, you know, Fast and the Furious, you flip over and you hit the, what the hell do they the call NOS. it? The NOS. The NOS. Yeah. Like, and you're on that. And, and it was, I've always said it was like, because people would say, well, how do you get all these grades? Well, I had a 99 average at a high school and you're involved in everything. How do you do this and how do you manage to do all the co-curricular and be involved in charity work and get all this stuff on your resume that means you get these other opportunities and mm -hmm. other people have to, you know, sleep or <laughs> study. And it was like my buddy Mike, who's this amazing guitar player, I once asked him, man, can you teach me how to play guitar? And he goes, no. And I was like, why, man? Am I that, am I that hopeless? And he goes, no. You're going to be better than me, bro. No, he just goes, no, because I don't know how I play guitar. I just do. Yeah. And I realized that getting these grades and doing all this extra volunteer work and having all these ideas and having this extra drive. I didn't know how I had it. I didn't know why other people didn't. It wasn't so much like I knew why I had it. I'm like, why can't you? Like, right. why is this so, so freaking wasn't, hard for you? It wasn't like uh, in Limitless where you were taking a pill every morning no. to like get you through. And We are and, all over the, uh, yeah. the movie references yeah. today. It's hardcore. <laughs> but it is, it is an extra gear. Like, mm -hmm. and, and, it, and this is why the funny thing, I know lots of diseases where addiction is a byproduct of the disease. This is a, a weird one because you can actually get addicted to the disease. Well, and that, yeah, that's something that I was, that I found really interesting about this hypomanic state. It's like, wouldn't you, it seems like most people, if they had the ability to like, tr to get to that state would want to strive to go there as much as possible. And it's, it sounds like a crazy version of uh, like Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, but you know, I, th this is interesting. Oh, wow, I, I feel like I'm, I'm addicted in a way to my cystic fibrosis. You, you are. Hardcore. Yeah. Like we had a fucking doctor come in and, and try to change my mind about lung transplantation. And, I'm, and I still to this day, I'm like, nah, probably not. I like I I, I we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but but it, there is, there's something about there yeah, I don't know. There's something about the way that it alters the way that I think and the way that I act and the way that I speak and you know, the decisions that I make day to day that I that I really love and I don't want to ever lose that. 
it to- and I totally can see why that would be the case with someone who's dealing with bipolar and you know like tapping into this like hypomanic state well, it, over and over and over again and it, it becomes the problem is is that you know have you ever dealt with someone who's with mental illness and they stop taking their meds mm. and it's so frustrating it's so frustrating for us who do it because yeah. it always blows up in our face and it's frustrating for the people who love us because they're just like you know this helps now one of the frustrating things is that some days the meds will just they just stop working like mm. exact same dose and all and it's they just stop working and it's so utterly frustrating and What's interesting, though, is that let's say, because there's this version of you, there was this version of me who had this gear other people didn't have. Now, it came with negatives, right? Because you can't stop talking. You have this real pressured speech. You always have ideas. You have trouble sleeping. You can't end conversations even when every social cue is telling you you're done. (laughs) It's over. It's over. It's over. Yeah. You say things that are... uh, inappropriate you kind of you become so wrapped up in your ideas and this this feeling well like you said like on ecstasy mm-hmm. like there's a a set of social parameters that sort of fall away because you feel unbeatable you feel smarter and more creative yeah. and funnier than other people because you kind of might be but at the same time that doesn't necessarily go over well if you don't know how to interact with other people. And what hypomania, and especially mania does, is that it kind of makes your, your ability to pick up social cues fall away as well mm-hmm. because your brain is moving so quickly. And yeah, just like firing all the time. And, but you can become <coughs> what you're capable of doing in that gear. Uh, there's a, um, like once you've been more than normal, it's awfully hard to ever want to be normal again. Even though you see the damage it does to your relationships, you see the damage it does to your life and your health. And so... What happens is you, in my case, I finally figured out what was going on. I finally decided that I was willing to do something about it. I started taking meds and it really did help. Mm. But what happens is that version of you, when you have an extra gear, you start to think that's the best version of you. And now what you've basically been told is, okay, in order to get rid of the darkness and the danger that comes with it, you also have to say goodbye to the best version of you. Right. And so imagine you're now dealing with tough stuff at work or you're dealing with you really like someone and you think they'll never like this version of me who's boring. Like, I don't have that gear anymore. That was the best thing I had. Mm-hmm. And you start to think, or you're going through a really difficult time at home and you, need, you think you need that version of you, like with the extra gear. And so you start to miss them. And even though, and you start to forget all of the stuff that comes with that version of that that person, right? It's like that friend that you know always gets you f- like fucking arrested, <laughs> and you forget about that. Like you you, t- you stay away for a while, but then you, you you sort of just sand off that rough part, yeah. and you're like, oh, let's go hang out again because it's so much fun. And uh, I might have been that guy. Um, but, uh, it, it, what it really is is that you start to make a deal with yourself. Okay, well, now I know what to look for. So I'm going to stop taking these meds because I'm not as impressive. I don't feel like I'm whole. I feel like a piece of me is missing. And But I know what to look for now. If I feel the darkness coming, if I feel that I'm losing control, I'll, I'll pay attention. And you feel like you can, you can, you can handle it. And you can't. <clears throat> like, yeah. The problem is because the, person, the thing in charge of monitoring all that is the thing that's sick, your brain. Mm-hmm. And that's... And I can't say that's why all people stop taking their meds. I will say 
that it might like it, it may be a reason because what you've done is you've given up a piece of you that might like you said in some ways you're addicted to mm-hmm. now the best version of me isn't the guy i am when i'm hypomanic it's mm-hmm. not I, I just think it was yeah it's the version of me when i'm healthy when i've got uh, when i'm taking care of myself when i'm taking care of the people i care about that's the best version of me but that can seem boring there's like there's a musical next to normal. And they're like, I don't want to be normal, but something next to normal mm-hmm. would be okay. Mm-hmm. But normal, when you've had something more than it, can it's like you said, like limitless. You know, all kinds of damage is happening. But once you've been there, it's hard to let go of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, one of the big things for me dealing with my bipolar was to recognize that that hypomanic version of me was not a better version of me. But you romanticize it. And how, how often would you spend uh, time in the hypomanic state versus like the depressive state? Mm, it, it it honestly would also depend on um, it, on what time of my life. Like when I'm in my twenties, it would seem like hypomanic was eighty percent of the time, and then the downtime would be twenty, and you just think that you were burnt out yeah. because you just kind of yeah. feel meh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it was only later in my twenties where, when I came out of the hypomanic, it wasn't just meh. It was dark. And then right. each wave would go a little darker. But we're talking like semesters at a time, I'd be hypomanic. We're talking two, two and a half months at a time. You'd feel like you're in this hypomanic state. You'd go through three, four weeks, maybe a few more of being meh. And you kind of panic. You're like, where's my motivation? Where's my inspiration? Mm-hmm. And then it would go back up. Once I started my career is when I come out of hypomanic and it wouldn't just be like, oh, I don't have motivation. It would be like, I don't trust myself or I don't believe in myself and then it goes from I don't believe in myself to I can't stand myself and the big part of that is actually more less I can't stand myself and you start to believe no one else likes you and so you start picking apart every social interaction you're a part of afterwards you're like did I talk too long did I say something stupid do they think I'm an idiot and so imagine not only living your life in a social world but then spending as much time or more on picking apart every interaction to identify how you embarrassed yourself, how you upset someone else, and you become utterly convinced that nobody actually likes or respects you. Yeah. And then you don't want to interact with people, especially if, in my case, when you're hypomanic, you create a life that involves an incredible amount of time and commitment to maintain. Like, I'm involved in all of these things. I'm sharing this. Uh, I've created all these expectations for myself and through others, like I want other people to expect more from me. That was my identity. And then once the depression comes, then you don't feel like you can maintain that. Like you build a life that requires X amount of fuel right. and then you don't yeah. feel it. So early my 20s and my teens, mostly hypomanic, I think. And then as I got into my 20s, it, it would start being a lot more even, right? Mm-hmm. And then the depression is so much, like as good as the hypomanic is in terms of how you feel and how, how it affects your career in some cases and the rewards it brings, the depression in half the time can do twice the amount of negative. How so, old are you now? 39. <clears throat> and when were you di- like officially diagnosed with bipolar? Nine, nine years ago, actually. So 2007. Okay. Oh. So, that, that's crazy because they say, like they say hindsight's 2020. And when, and when you're looking back at these experiences now, you can talk so knowledgeably about being hypomanic and being in a depressive state. But when was it in that time that you started to realize like, holy shit, like this is not in quotations normal. <clears throat> And you and and you would need to that you need to like seek help for that. You know, it's tough because you resist it too. Because, like we said, you don't want to make mistakes and you don't mm. want to be seen as weak. It's very competitive, and also like I was three hundred pounds. I, I got really big, 
And so I'm not an attractive guy to look at. But uh, no, you're not I, bad I, looking. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. But like at the time, like I, I'm 300 pounds. You lost a fuckload of weight. Fuck yeah, weight. yeah. Like Gone, how, how much do you weigh yeah, right now? Weigh now? Uh, two oh, two oh two. And uh, you're you're what? Like like five five nine five nine. Okay, cool. Thanks, though, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I like lost everyone is taller than me. I'm five nine. Everyone just looks taller than me. I don't know. I I, I, I have no idea where, where that comes from. Well, technically, I'm five nine and three quarters. Anyone around like, <laughs> anyone five ten and under knows to like the decimal point. Yeah, totally. yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, I'm five seven point six three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and but six foot four guys are like I don't know six four. Six, uh, five, my friend, like, a, my friend AJ, she always like she was. We were talking about height and and. <laughs> And I was talking to you about it, and I said I was five nine. She's like, "Oh, so you mean five seven? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, God damn it, I am five nine. Yeah. yeah so where, whatever. so where did the uh, like? Obviously, the, you know this this kind of follows you through your twenties because you know you didn't. And one of the things that we've that uh, I think someone told uh, one of our guests uh, said on uh, on a mental health episode that we did was that the average time it takes to have oh, something yeah. boy, from the time you kind of think, oh, hmm. Maybe there's an issue to the time someone goes, this is what you have, is eight years in the mental health yeah, world. It, it, it was, because the frustration is you, the amount of times you decide to get help and the amount of times it feels like you run into a wall is so, is so many. But as I was saying, like, I'm a big dude. I don't have a lot of confidence in myself. You feel pretty crappy about it. Um, and so you start to confuse that. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I just need to get in shape. I just need to, because that'll make my life better. And, you know, I'm getting into 2006, 2007, and what it was is that I couldn't, like, I'd find myself, my friends would be like, hey, we're going out, I'd be like, I'll be there in a minute, like, because I'd come home from work, and I, and you're exhausted all the time when you're 300 pounds, right? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, you're just always exhausted. Yeah. And I sat on the edge of the bed and, and just stared off in the distance, and then they came back, like, five hours later. And uh, they're like, I'm like, oh, and they're like, hey, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll be there. I'll come out in a minute. They're like, we've gone out and come back. And I just sat there and stared. Like that's when I, Whoa. it went from being like how I feel to strange things were happening. Right. I uh, we, we were in uh, Montreal one weekend, like five or six years ago, and uh, and we made this uh, this bowl of 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 punch. It was called uh, top. Uh, Tucker Max Death Mix, the old the asshole Tucker Max. Yeah. It was based off him, and uh, it was uh, like Red Bull, Gatorade, and Al Cool, which is like this ninety eight or ninety six percent alcohol. And uh, we poured it all into a punch bowl, mixed it up, and we were going out to a bar to meet a bunch of friends. And uh, we started drinking at like it was like five thirty or six o'clock in the evening, and uh, seven o'clock rolled around. I was I was absolutely blackout drunk. And uh, the next thing I knew, I, I opened my eyes and I looked over at the clock and it was, it was seven o'clock and the light was out. And I was like, guys, guys, I looked around, everybody's sleeping. I'm like, guys, holy fuck, we, we all fell asleep. We got to get up. We got to go to the party. And they were like, uh, uh, it's seven in the morning. And I was like, what the fuck? I, I passed out and you guys, you, you didn't wake me up. And they're like, no, you came to the bar. And I was like, what the fuck? I went to the bar and I was just blackout drunk the entire time and was there till like two in the morning. Absolutely no recollection of it at all. Uh, imagine that, and that's imagine scary, that happening without booze. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That, yeah. I've, I, I've been blackout once before and, it, and I, I couldn't get over how scary that was. I know, right? right? <laughs> to go, oh my God, I have zero recollection of from this point to this point. I mean, like, you know, you go and you have like a, a bender of a night. There's always like pieces where you're going, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Like I, I remember seeing someone or whatever, but to to go to to straight up be like, I literally do not remember life 
and I never will from that point to that point. Like that is yeah. a horrifying thing. And without any yeah. alcohol or, or, you know, drugs in it, causing that, like I can't even imagine how much of a mind fuck that is. And, and that's a good <clears throat> word for it. And then, so I'm like, okay, I have to do something. And because the problem is though, you build this world around you and, and my students, I had a girlfriend and she called me Superman, right? Cause like, oh wow, you do all this stuff. And, and once you get called Superman, you want to live up to it. Right? Yeah, right, yeah. And so now Superman feels weak, <coughs> doesn't want to say anything about it. And so, you know, you're supposed to be a high performer. And I had to convince myself that, you know, as I was saying, I was joking before is that I'm this big guy is not much to look at. So the only reason people like me is because I can get stuff done. Right, I can raise money. I can run projects. I can give speeches and inspire people. So I've convinced myself that is my worth, and now I don't feel like I can do it. Mm. And the last thing you want to do is admit that because basically you're saying to people, you know, all the stuff that's valuable about me, turns out I can't do that anymore. So all you got left is this piece of shit. Right. And so <clears throat> the problem then though is that you go and uh, I say, okay, I, I want to get some help. So I go to my where I work, they've got employee assistance program and they hook you up with a counselor, which takes six weeks to talk to, right? Then you go to the Fuck. counselor and some of them are just terrible. And this is anyone listening who's dealing with mental health. Like, I don't want this to discourage anyone. Mm-hmm. You have to keep trying. Like it is, but I will tell you, if you're lucky enough to go see a counselor or a doctor and right away, you're like, oh, this works great. It's in the minority. Right. Like it is because... And the number who sit down are like, oh, are you dating anyone? Oh, well, that's probably the problem. I cannot believe, especially, especially women, how many of they go to these counselors and then one of the first questions is like, oh, are you seeing anyone? Why is that? And, and it just reinforces this idea that somehow like, oh, well, just, just get a date and everything will be fine. And I got like that three times too. Like, well, why aren't you saying, oh, I'm 305 pounds. Why the hell do you don't think I'm seeing someone, right? Like, yeah. And so you give up and you try to go back and deal with it. Or you set up an appointment at when you're at your darkest and it's seven weeks away, right? And then yeah. the day comes and you're like, oh, I feel better. Um, and you don't go. Yeah, we, we, we just did a, we, uh, this super sad, we, there's, a, there's a, a thing in the Metro newspaper in Halifax and uh, we did a short little <clears throat> episode just talking about just the struggles of, uh, of like mental health patients and people in uh, in Nova Scotia and the health system because there was a story about a, a kid who you know, he was like 19 or 20 years old he was feeling super super he was he he deals with depression has dealt with it for a long time managed it really well but just got to the point where he was like yo mom I need some help like he he did all the proper things to uh, seek out the help that he thought that he needed and when he went to get it it just wasn't there when yeah. he needed it and then he committed suicide and it's like he did everything that we that you are told you need to do when trying to when trying to cope with mental health issues, and the system just wasn't there to support. Yeah, him. the soonest they could get him in was like two months down the road, and yeah. he went home that night and was like, "I can't wait two months." Yeah, and, took and, his and life. it's tough because you're like, "Well, you can go go to the emergency room," and when you're the friend being like, "Go to the emergency room." You, it makes total sense to you, but any of us who, even if you like, kind of hurt yourself, you don't want to go to the emergency room, right? Like, the emergency room is like, oh, you're, you're you have a gunshot, you should go to the emergency yeah. room. You're having a heart yeah. attack, but there are nights like you need to go yeah. because your brain it has turned on you completely, and that's the problem with mental illness is that it makes your brain forget. 
like not necessarily, we've talked about how it can make it lose time, mm -hmm. but ultimately your brain's fundamental job, right, is to keep you alive. Mm -hmm. Like rip everything else the brain can do away. Its primary like lizard instinct is to do not die. It's yeah. why... It's why we're naturally, most people are afraid of heights. It's why mm -hmm. most people don't like public speaking because through most of human history, standing alone in front of a group of people is a shitty place to be. Right. So it's, we've evolved to hate it. It's why you can't poke yourself in the eye and don't try. <laughs> All right? But like if you tell like your brain is basically, what are you doing? No, don't, you, yeah, yeah, stop don't do doing that. that to your face. Exactly. Yeah. But your brain, when you're mentally <clears throat> ill, will sometimes forget that. And for whatever reason, it starts to think that you are a threat. Mm. And so it turns and starts to attack That's a super, you. super interesting way of looking at it. Now imagine fighting something that knows you better than yourself. <laughs> like, this is why fighting with the people closest to us is so painful because they've got the A-bomb, right? Like, every one of your best friends, my guess is yeah. that you guys each know, <laughs> yeah. like, there is... And this is the thing about being guy friends too, eh? Like you pick, right? We like that's how guys show their love for each other. We say crappy things to each other, but we all know that there's two or three jokes that don't get made. We were in, we were in, we were in, we were in an Uber yesterday, and we were all picking at each other. And the Uber driver just like says out of the blue, he's like. You guys just really fucking like picking on each other, don't you? <laughs> he, goes, like, he goes, you guys like to test each other's limits, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. And that's, that's kind of how guys show their love, right? <laughs> but well, you all know that there's the, so like there's that one thing that you could say to him that would just cut like right to the very core. Right. Yeah. And you don't do it. But imagine basically what mental illness is often doing battle with the thing, like with the person who knows every one of those things about you and exactly when to launch them yeah. and is relentless. Yeah. Like that's the, that's the big difference I think, between bullying now and when I was a kid, right? I could go home from school and just kind of get away. And I think where things are really scary now for young people is that social media, what it has effectively done is made it so that the bullying can be relentless. Like you oh. cannot escape it. You're yeah. taking your social, your social like atmosphere everywhere you yeah. go. It's, it's, it's never not with you. And these kids can't escape it. Right. Like, and you can, and, and this is something we're thinking too, for all the adults listening, like when there's not a lot of kids listening yeah, to well, the show, <laughs> true. Well, let's say parents, right? Let's yeah. say parents. So uh, let's hope not anyway. Right. But, um, but if you are, you're the coolest kid I know, <laughs> but like, <laughs> When I was a kid, I knew that parents behaved badly, right? That mm -hmm. they did. Like, I have vague memories of my parents getting drunk some nights and, right. uh, or being mean to other people, right? But as a general rule, I think when I was a kid, he, adults behaving badly kind of got kept from you. Now I think we have to realize that children get to see adults being assholes probably at a higher percentage than when I was a kid and mm -hmm. probably even you guys were, were kids. Like... We can't, how do we tell kids not to bully when they watch, like they're on Twitter, like yeah. they're on Facebook. They there was, this, there was this huge, there was this uh, thing, I think it, it was a, a Russell Brand posted or something. It was like, how the fuck do we expect our kids to not bully when, uh, you know, you say, don't, hey, hey kids, like don't go to school and bully your classmates. Uh, but, uh, hey, let's sit down and watch TMZ, yeah. uh, exploit all of these people's personal lives, like to like relentlessly with cameras and base and like photoshopping shit that that makes them look like they're doing things that they're just not doing and and like the 
Bruce Jenner thing. Mm. I mean, that's what it was about. It was about Bruce Jenner and them being like, oh, look at what Bruce looks like today. Like, what a fucking... Ugh. And they're like, are you kidding me? And then you turn around and say... Uh, you know, go treat everybody with respect mm-hmm. and uh, be mm-hmm. polite and all this stuff. It's like, dude, what the fuck is going on? This is yeah. The adult underworld is no longer hidden from kids, yeah. right? And that's that's it's a it's a and imagine your brain's doing that. Like, uh, like in some ways, my my mental illness. Like, I just never maybe this is a way diminishing way of putting it, but you're always seeking ways to better understand it when you have this. Maybe it's like having your own version of TMZ following you around and just attempting to find all the things that make you insecure, all yeah. the things that make you hate yourself and just turn it on you. And then what it does, is it convinces you other people see it too. Right. And, and that's tough. And, and you talk about, you know, getting blackout that one of the problems with, with bipolar is that without realizing it, people with those of us with bipolar, we self-medicate. And so you start feeling depressed and you start looking for things to get you out of it without even realizing it. And that's why, you know, for me, I was in my early 20s, I discovered the rave scene, right? So that's where you've got amphetamines. That's where you've got ecstasy. And then you've got, uh, you start to feel hypomanic. And this is when you're in your 20s and you're feeling a lot of hypomania. Mm. And so you want to get something. Your brain starts seeking ways to slow itself down. And that's where you start finding pot. And like, what is the most easily accessible depressant on the planet? Alcohol, Alcohol. booze, right? And it's socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. And so, like, when, you know, and at first, my doctor, when they diagnosed me with bipolar, I hadn't been drinking for years. And uh, because I was like, I have to stop drinking. I have so many gifts in my life, friends and and a career that I'm going to screw up. And I'd quit. And then, you know, my doctor was like, look, you shouldn't drink. Like, it's your life is better without booze. But I can't let you believe you have a disease you don't have. And you're not an alcoholic. You are bipolar and you were self-medicating. Right. And so, you know, two years later, with that in mind, I have a beer. And it's okay, right? And, and it's all right. So, and then it's, I have another beer and it's okay. And for three few weeks, it's okay. And I'm like, oh, cool, I'm not an alcoholic. God, it'd be nice to have a few Corona every now and then on a patio, right? I don't want to drink again. And then, you know, seven years later, yeah, you Mm got to go. So (coughs) alcoholism and and the bipolar are tied to one another. But for a while I was like, because if you're an alcoholic, you're looking for an excuse to not be an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. right? And the problem was I tried to do it alone, right? Like you, and no addiction gets beaten alone. Like you can hold it off on your own, but you must have a support system to fight an addiction. Did you, uh, like, so you you said you, 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 your doctor said, oh, you're not an alcoholic, you're self-medicating. Yeah. And this is what you were, you said, like, when, when you were diagnosed-ish with bipolar. Yeah. So when you're 30-ish years old. Uh, so it's kind of crazy were that you, you said that. Were you, yeah. that's, that's not, uh, were you, uh, were you drinking really hev- heavily, like, before you are diagnosed? And, and did that, did, did the weight Gain did the did the weight and the alcoholism come and go? Well, I know it didn't go completely because you went back to because you came back to it. But uh, did that come and go before any diagnosis was given? Yeah, the weight gain started before the diagnosis. Like I was at my heaviest when I got diagnosed, and I stayed that way till 2012. Right, um, food made me feel good while I was eating it, and then mm-hmm. it made me hate myself afterwards. Uh, and really, uh, for me, it was, um, uh, you know, when, it, when I started to think about, oh, well, maybe I should throw up after eating, that I was like, okay, something's got to change. Because, like, right. you, sometimes you recognize when you're crossing thresholds. And I said to some people lately, like, it was like, well, I got a line for this. 
And I'm like, I, I will tell you, and I respect that. I'm not going to tell you, because I'm the last person on earth to get to tell you how to deal with all kinds of this stuff. But I will tell you the line keeps moving, mm. right? Like, it's like, well, I only do this when I'm out with friends. And I'm like, but I never do this. And then once you do that, I never do. You're like, well, okay, but I never do this. And the line keeps rolling. I was watching yeah. an episode of The Wire the other day. And, and, and if you're familiar with The Wire, Bubbles is, is at an AA meeting or a, or an, or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Um, and, the, and the episode opens with a, a girl in the meeting telling her story. And she was like, the, the line that you say you won't cross, like these are just a plethora of all the things that you will do to get high or to, to go back to being drunk. Like that line keeps moving. And every time you say, you, I won't do this or I won't go that far, that's just you making another benchmark that you will, uh, that you will yeah. meet. Like you're, you're almost drawing out a map. Right, exactly. It's, it's tough, but yeah, the, the, the drinking, see, I drink a lot. See, that's a ch- an interesting one because there's a lot of different types of alcoholics. And I was never uh, the alcoholic who got up and had a drink every day. But what I, and I, because of that, I said I wasn't an alcoholic, right? right? Because I'd go two, three weeks without drinking. Hmm. Now, a big part of it was I love what I do. Like I am given the gift of people giving me their attention for an hour. And it's weird because even in the midst of everything in your life falling apart, there are certain parts of you that you're like, I will not compromise this. And maybe it's because when I get to go on stage and speak and talk about ideas and tell stories, it's when I feel like I'm at my absolute best. Like I still have that feeling of being hypomanic and it's whenever I'm on a stage, but it it doesn't come with all the racing thoughts. What I mean by that is that I feel like there is still the best version of me that I can go and access anytime I need to. And that is a wonderful gift. <coughs> yeah. So I have the chance to go on stage, share ideas with people, and end up at that moment, I never feel more useful, I never feel more alive, I never feel more like I'm a person of worth. And so I still have that, and I never would mess with it. So even when I was still drinking, I would never drink the night before I spoke, ever. It, it just it never happened. And so I, and, and if you travel a lot, you also hate being hungover when you travel. So I'd go on tours of two or three weeks and I wouldn't drink. Right. And so you're like, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. The problem is when I would sit down and have a drink, I would have all the drinks, all the drinks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or you drink until something bad happens. Cause, and often when you have a career like mine, which is a, a remarkable amount of time alone in airports and hotels, you make friends with the bartender. Like, and, and this is weird. The craft beer explosion oh, played man. a big role in it too because it used to be like, oh, you'd go and do you want a Coors Light or do you want a Bud? Well, now wherever you go, like I'm flying to Portland and Austin oh, yeah. and, oh, like, man. and everywhere you go is like, do you want to try the double chocolate milk stout porter award winning? Of course. And what would happen is all of a sudden you're like, wow, I've had five beer five times this week. I've never been drunk. But that, it's always just becomes a part of what you do. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts back in in my 30s uh, you know when when before my diagnosis i would go periods of time without drinking 
but the thing was I didn't seem to, when I started drinking, I didn't seem to have a, a ability to stop, right? Like yeah. you drink until <clears throat> something bad happens. Mm-hmm. And, but you tell yourself you're not an alcoholic, you just need to be smarter with your booze. Right. The, the craft beer, the, Lonis and I were talking about the, the uh, kind of a, an anomaly of the craft beer explosion that, you know, you can go and have, in, in relation to, uh, like, alcohol consumption and, like, the amount, the amount that you consume, you know, you could go and have, uh, you know, six or seven cores light that are, what, three and a half or four percent, and you go, oh, yeah, like, I got a, I got a buzz, but, like, it's... It is what it is. Now you go to a bar and you have three pints and like a lot of the craft beers are like, oh, try this double IPA. That's a pint of beer and it's an eight and a half percent. And you have three pints that you associate in terms of volume. Uh, one beer. Yeah. Yeah. You go, oh, I just had three beer, whatever. But they were eight and a half percent and you're like feeling real loopy. And just that, you know, mm-hmm. you, like, but because of our association with the craft beer explosion being very, very quick and, you know, you're trying all these beers, be, becoming drunk Mm-hmm. Is a, can be a much faster process when we're approaching the beer consumption. And again, it's almost like an artsy thing. Like now you're artsy when you're drunk. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, well, I'm not drunk. I was out at a craft beer festival. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. tasting and sampling. But yeah, it, and I got huge. And um, your mental health is tied to your physical health. Mm-hmm. And so I felt bad about myself. I felt bad physically. I was stressed out. Food made me feel better. I eat. Then I'm like, oh, man, like I'm going to get fatter. And it, but it was when I started to be like, you know what? Like I, you know, I'd eat, uh, go home and I'd eat uh, on a Friday night and I'd order two uh, medium pizzas and a large breadsticks from Pizza Hut and I'd eat all but half of one of the pizzas and I'd eat it the next day at lunch and then I'd do the same thing Saturday night while watching and playing video games. Like, yeah. like we're talking $200 a week on pizza because it is the only thing that made me feel Good, And I thought that was it. So then you get a buzz to go with it. And I didn't realize that I had the ability to feel good about myself uh, on my own without these external features. Now, the bipolar, when you're in a depressive mood, it desperately, it's like a hole in the middle of you. And into that, it's like almost like those coal furnaces, like in the scene in Titanic when they're just heaving stuff in. Like what you're doing there is you are throwing everything you can think of into the furnace. Food, booze, friendship, like whatever you're just desperately seeking something to make it feel like mm. the hole will be full. Like if you just give it enough fuel, the hatred of yourself and the lack of empathy you feel and the complete self-centeredness of, and it's not self-centeredness in a, I'm the best. It's self-centeredness in the, I am so consumed with how bad I feel that I simply am incapable of thinking about other people. Mm-hmm. And that's I, tough. I'm really curious to know about how, um, so, like, kind of switching gears, but yeah. So we started like, a whole lot of, of stuff. I know, and never, right? I, I know. I feel like, I don't know if I've been helpful to anyone. No, this oh, has been, dude, this dude, has been fantastic, yeah. and and, yeah. and I think this is a good segue into wondering how and if your your experience in um, in public speaking mm-hmm. and and you know you you were saying that when you're on the stage in front of these people, it's you at your very best. Yeah. You know, it's it's you at your most authentic and like true self. How has I'm assuming it has, and if not, then whatever. But how has your, or or has your career and the things that you love to do about your career, have they become a a source of therapy for you and your bipolar, your alcoholism, your your weight issues? You, you know what? That's a really good question. A source of therapy? I don't know, but maybe it's this. Because I was given this gift by people um, the, of, of their attention, 
And, mm-hmm. and people being kind enough to call me and email me and text me and say, I've seen your talks. They matter to me. Uh, this changed my life in a positive way. You, there's a dissonance when you feel as if you don't deserve it. And let's be straight up. I'm, I'm going to do another podcast soon about successful people who feel like imposters. Everybody feels like that. Yeah. But I wanted to be the man that other, like, what's the joke? Be the person your dog thinks you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if, in, in many ways, what it was, I was being given this extraordinary gift. Now, I've been given some negative stuff too, right? But I've been given something that I love to do that I would do for, for sorry, I'm not going to say that out loud. Um, <laughs> that, that, you know, like I have this job yeah. that, um, and I wanted to live up to it. Like I wanted to live up to the trust and respect that people were giving me. Uh, and so I think that was a big part of it is that how do you stand on stage and talk about and say leadership is making one big decision to make a series of positive, consistent, small decisions. Excuse me. How do you do that at 305 pounds? Mm. Because clearly you are not, I'm not making good health decisions for myself. Mm, right. So the desire to do this for the rest of my life, because I love it so much was like, you won't be able to do this. One, you will not live very long. Mm-hmm. Like that became apparent. And two, why would anyone listen to you? If you want to do this for the rest of your life, you can't be 300 pounds. I had to change something. So that drove it. Uh, I didn't, I talk about identifying what you want to stand for on a daily basis and then taking steps daily to live it. And the only time, like I make mistakes, we all make mistakes, but generally the mistakes that I make when I'm sober are genuine mistakes. Like they're well-intentioned and I think them through and I take a shot and they don't work. All right. And sometimes you accidentally hurt someone or say something stupid, but they are generally things you thought through, took a shot and it just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. When drunk, that's not the type of decisions you make. They're impulsive. They do not consider the possible consequences. And I started to look and I'm saying, the only times in my life where I'm truly ashamed of myself, because I have no problem if I take a shot at something and fail, but the moments where I was ashamed of myself, there was one common denominator every single time. The moments where I hurt other people, there was a common denominator every single time. I am a good person, but I did bad person things when I was drunk. Mm -hmm. And so... I started to look and say, I want to live up to what I preach. And so that made me say, it's time to quit drinking, right? And so, yeah, in many ways, what I do for a living, I believe very strongly in it. And as a result, I needed to be the type of person that felt like I had the right to deliver that message Mm -hmm. because it's a good message and it's one that works. But I, I got to a point in my life, I think, where I did not feel comfortable delivering it because I didn't think I was a human being who deserved to. And, and that played a big role in changing. And what, you know, you say you, you, you referred to it as this gift. And, you know, I just can't help but sit here and think of how bang on that is. It is such a gift because not only is it something that takes, forces you to step back and go, okay, something has to change here. If I'm actually going like, to, like, talk the talk, I got to walk the walk. Yeah. And helps you, you know, overcome the, you know, whatever the issues that you are dealing with. But at the exact same time, it's also helping, like that work that you're doing is also being, uh, is super therapeutic or helpful for millions of other people 
in the world, right? It's like it is. It is just this like insanely incredible gift. I just, yeah, I don't know. Like I had no I think, point there. I just, I, it's just I feel and, so. And just to add to that, I, I think that it's it. The whole point is that the reason why you can deliver this message now and and ha- it have the power and weight behind it that it does is because you are being authentic and being real about who you are. You're not trying to to sugarcoat the things that that would quote unquote bring you down in life, right? Like being honest about that and being vulnerable is what gives people that trust in you. That's good. Thank you. Because vulnerability is an interesting thing, right? Because as I joked when I came in here today, uh, I have to be open about this stuff because I go on stage and talk about leadership and, and people who don't like the message. And one of the problems with being what I do is that someone will always hate you. Like it doesn't matter. Like you go on stage, as soon as you walk on stage, of any kind, whether it's a social media stage or a real actual literal one, someone in the audience is going to hate you. And that takes some time to get used to in my business because you want to be liked. But you can't... I have to be open about the fact that I've been bipolar or that I am bipolar and that it has made me behave historically in ways that I am embarrassed of. I do not make excuses for it. I am not responsible for what the disease does to me, but I am responsible for doing everything in my power to take care of myself and try to manage it. And there have been times in my life where I abdicated that responsibility and bad things happened. Mm-hmm. And that's my responsibility. And it has made me behave in ways that I think has hurt people. And I need to be open about that uh, and apologize for it. The same with alcohol. Like al- I am powerless over alcohol, step one, right? And I... At times when I've been drinking, I behaved in ways that I'm ashamed of. I behaved in ways that I hope people forgive me for. But I have to own that. And it does not change the things that I say. I really am this guy. And there's a version of me that is, that is broken. There's a version of me that's weak. And I will be open with you. Some people don't like knowing that. I, I feel like I disappoint people. Like doing podcasts like this and even being heard swearing sometimes, mm. it throws people off because <clears throat> they do have a perception of you. The guy I am on stage is me, but it is a version of me that I've worked very hard to be effective. And what I mean by that is that I have over time figured out exactly what I can say that will be most useful to people, I mm. hope. And it doesn't involve swearing. And it involves looking at the positive side of things. Mm-hmm. And I want to be open with people that I'm not perfect. I'm not always positive. But the things I talk about on stage, I genuinely believe in. I believe genuinely, it. That's yeah, it. And I, I do live, try to live up to it. Yeah. But when you admit vulnerability is weird. A bunch of people will love it. A bunch of people will be like, I'm so glad to hear that this person who talks about positivity, who talks about identifying key values and living them every day, also falls flat on his face sometimes. Mm. Others are disappointed when they find out that you don't always succeed in what you're teaching. I've found the, the former group, the ones who are like, oh, wow, like you've dealt with depression, me too. Oh, wow, you've, you've struggled with alcohol, me too. Or you've done things that you're not proud of, oh, me too. Because I've discovered the greatest gift you can give people isn't to make them say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, oh my God, I could never do that. The greatest gift you can give to people is to make them say, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Mm-hmm. And, and really, what's the point of this podcast other mm-hmm. than that? Right. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the things that this podcast talks about, it's the stuff that people I'm sh- like, feel so alone at. Like, and, and we can't joke about it because it makes other people uncomfortable, right? right? Yeah. And so like death 
and enemas. And like, <laughs> this is stuff that people don't want to talk about. Alcoholism, the worst parts of my life, the fact that I get to go on stage and say, we can make a difference every day of someone's life. And yeah, I've been drunk enough to get arrested. Like, that's part of who I am. Uh, I never want to do it again. But I, I've had a really terrible day or two or 50 or 100 in my life. All I can do is acknowledge that and then attempt to have five really good positive ones for every one of those. And I think that one of the key messages I want to give people is like, look, I want people to recognize, I want you to recognize, like your friends do, like most of your friends probably realize that you are the person that you are on the average Wednesday afternoon not the person you are on your worst Saturday night. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that what this, uh, social media have, have given us the opportunity to do as well is to judge people on their worst Saturday nights. Like, right. we now have the ability to judge people on the worst 5% of their lives, in some cases on the worst 15 seconds of their lives. Yeah. And if you took a look at the worst, like, there's 5% of your life that, that, there's 5% of your life that represents the very worst of you, that represents moments of anger, jealousy, sadness, bitterness, stupidity, uh, you know, like Ooh. desperation. There's 5% of your life that represents all of those things. If we shone a spotlight on just that 5% for almost anyone in the world, like you don't want the world to assess you on that. It's not, a, it's not indicative. Mm-hmm. Like think of your worst 5%. And then imagine that was the only thing people got to see. Like, <laughs> holy shit. Dude, right? that's, that's, that's terrifying. Because, yeah. because anytime you shine a spotlight on anything, also bear in mind it throws everything else around it into darkness. Like, yeah. that's the thing yeah. about spotlights, right? Like, it'll illuminate yeah. the thing in the middle, but you can't see, can't shit, see shit outside. Yeah. And so I think not only do we have to forgive ourselves for our 5%, we have to recognize, like, whenever we see something online or a moment of someone's life, are we seeing the fight? Like, are we seeing the spotlight? Because it's very easy. I try to remember my 5% every time I see someone else's. Mm. And, and that is why I'm okay with doing these podcasts. Boom. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Yeah. that like, I love yeah. that. Thinking about your 5% when you see somebody else's, that, like, I love that. And being able to, being able to, to, you know, own up to that 5% and that vulnerability that we're talking about. Yeah. Like, it's the funny thing about, you know, specifically what comes to mind is like male bravado. Like, you put on this, you put on this sense of, or this image of, of strength and whatever and mask emotions and mask what you're really feeling. And, and really, it's making you weaker by the second with the image that you're trying to put on. And we were talking about this yesterday. We were t- having a conversation with uh, Jim Bremner about PTSD and, you know, just the culture of, of not being able to talk about how you feel mm-hmm. and owning that mm-hmm. and what that does to you over time. And, and but the other thing, too, is, like, look at the... When you, when you talk about social media, look at the media, too. And, and I hate to bring it back to TMZ, but, like, that's that spotlight fucking shining on these celebrities, these people that people look up to shining it on, on, on their 5% and even like sometimes artificially, well, they poke and and prod until they get, until they get what they're looking for and and encourage people to talk about that. Right. Which is, well, it it helps. We don't idolize. Well, we do idolize celebrities, but you know why TMZ is popular? Because it makes people feel better about themselves. Right. Like, it, 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 like the other people's worst 5%, the reason we like highlighting it is it makes us feel better about ourselves. And Elvis, uh, not Elvis, um, Bono, when he wrote about Elvis Presley once, 
He said, why is it that we want our heroes to die on a cross of their own making? And if they don't, we want our money back. Like, we want them to crash and burn. We, mm. we love Facebook because it, it lets us go online and feel better about ourselves when we can judge other people. Like, I left Facebook... And for anyone listening, give it a shot. I know that I, like, it's almost as if sacrilege is suggested now, but you want to talk about mental health. One of the greatest things I did, and I only did it in January, finally I quit Facebook. Like I have an official fan page, whatever, so you can publish whatever. Mm. But I don't have an own... Pro- now, it's tough. You miss out on some things. But I was talking to a friend, and she's dating a, a jackass, all right? And we all have a friend who's dating an idiot. And every time I talk to her about this relationship. She talked about how she felt angry and frustrated and judged and judgmental. And like everything she did, she had to run through a filter in her brain saying, well, how is he going to respond to this? Mm. And I was like, look, you got to break up. Like if you're in a relationship where every time you interact with the person, you feel frustrated and angry and judged and judgmental (laughs) and everything you do, you're like, oh, how does this how does this go to play for them? You got to get out of that. That's an abusive relationship. Even if they never lay a hand on you or, or, or curse at you, like you are an abusive relationship. And of course, like all of us who've been in a bad relationship, you come with a million reasons why. Well, you know, there are good moments and I call them um, season five relationships because if you've been a fan <laughs> of the West, you've seen a fan of the West. Well, you know, like I'm a West Wing fan. Yeah. And in season five, and we all have a show that we loved and then it jumped the shark and you kept watching because there'd be... Yeah, there'd be a scene, maybe a whole episode, but even a scene where you'd be like, that's what it used to be. And then you blow that little tiny percentage up into way bigger than it was out of desperation for it going back to what it was. And then I went home that night after having this conversation, of course, feeling better and superior about myself because I would never let that happen to me. I open up my computer. I go on Facebook. I'm there for 25 minutes, whatever. Close my laptop. And I realize that I'm pissed I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I feel judged, I feel judgmental. And I realized, oh my God, I'm in, an ab- like, I'm in that relationship with Facebook. Mm. I go on it all the time, I pass judgment on other people, I'm watching them judge each other, I'm feeling superior as a result of the fact that I never do that. I read some comments and I'm like, oh, well, I feel kind of crappy about myself. And I'm out at an event and I pull out my phone because I'm like, oh, well, I better make sure that I get this up because how is this gonna play on Facebook? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in that relationship. Yeah, that's happening right now. And yeah. then that same thing, though. I, I should leave. You should break up. But then you go through the same thing. Like, well... We've had some good times. Yeah. Or, or yeah. I've got all my networks. How will I stay in touch right. with my friends? Yeah. Like, he's, my CDs are in his truck, right? You know, like... Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the cooked, but it, I quit. I was like... I will deal with this. I will try because the beautiful thing about Facebook, it's not like a relationship where, where you can be like, I'm going to deactivate for a while and see how I handle it. And oh, for the yeah. first two weeks, it was tough because I kept holding on my phone and being like, oh, how do I share this moment? Oh, I guess I just have to enjoy this moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, foreign concept. I cannot tell you all. Like, the, we're talking like the Sick Boy podcast. One of the great sicknesses that we've all just agreed to keep is Facebook in some ways. And, and look, I'm sorry, Mark. I'd be no disrespect <laughs> to you. You created something amazing. He's definitely listening. Uh, but, he's listening for sure. But here, everybody, pick one month out of your life, one month out of this year, and be Facebook free. You don't have to quit forever, but like, it's yeah. like we used to call it October back in university just to, <laughs> just to prove to ourselves we could not drink for a month. Yeah. It, the amount of energy, like we only have so much 
physical, intellectual, and emotional energy. And we are not pouring enough of it into taking care of ourselves on a daily basis. And too much of it is into creating an entire other alternate life reality to be evaluated by other people. And we lie to ourselves and we're just like, oh no, Facebook is about staying connected and and finding out what's going on. No, it, it takes this energy of creating an entire other identity for yourselves mm-hmm. and it's exhausting. I think there's something really valuable in, in, in the, uh, in the, in the practice of, like you said, you don't have to, you don't have to quit it forever, but just to put it down so that you can step back, zoom out and, and just s- and see, see it for and what it is. Yeah. Because, because if you can do that and then go back to it with a different perspective, just the same way that you, you have the ability to create your social atmosphere around like your actual social atmosphere, like your community, like in, in, in yoga practice, when we talk about, you know, developing the self and being reflective and everything, it's like you have, you have your health that you can control that comes from within you. And then you have the health that you digest from the external world that you get from the community around you. And as long as you build a strong, a positive foundation and you, and you surround yourself with people that, that make you feel good about yourself and that make you want to do better, then that's going to feed you in a positive way. And Facebook can be like that if you choose, like, you know, you you have a friend that you always go on and they're just, they're on some rant about some bullshit that you're just like, and, and, and you're right. Like you look at it and you go, Oh, why the fuck did they say that? And then you get all hyped up and you feel high and mighty because you, you had an an, an opinion about why they're so fucking dumb. (laughs) And then, and then, and then eventually, and this is an experience of mine going, Jesus, like, I just don't, and this is a friend that I, you know, a friend that I've, that I know, have known since I was in elementary school. Yeah, Colin Darcy. I know. Right. Colin, it's you, Colin. <laughs> Colin, it's you. And then you go, and then you go, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> you're not going to be my friend anymore. You're not going to be in my social atmosphere. I'm not going to digest this anymore. I'm not going to digest this negativity anymore and you, and filter out all of the shit that doesn't feed your soul and only in, and 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 establish a foundation of of strong positive uh, of uh, content, and I think that we have the ability to do that. But like you said, it, you you got to be able to step back, put it down, see it for what it is, and approach it in a in in a positive mm-hmm. dr- yeah. approach. It, it, it one thing that social media does is it brings a lot of other people into into your life on a daily basis, a lot of things beyond your control. And we used to be able to more effectively control what we have to digest. And for me, a lot of, a big part of, I wish someone had told me this a lot earlier, but I'm actually finally getting my first tattoo because I've wanted a tattoo forever, Mm. but I also was just like, you you mean enough people who regret it to, you got to make (laughs) sure you know what you want. Like Mm -hmm. it wants, it has to be something that is real, that's for you. And finally, I, I kept referring to this thing in my presentations when you don't know what to do in a situation, ask yourself, what would the person I want to be do in this situation? And then do that. And so I, I'm getting a tattoo on my inner left arm that simply says, what would the man I want to be do? You know, not like WWJD, but it's like, <laughs> but what, would, what would the man I want to be do? What would the woman I want to be do? And I found that that approach really, you can strip away all the other crap that goes on when you have to face a decision. And it always comes back because you generally know the answer to that question. You may not like the answer to that question Mm -hmm. or you may not like what you have to do to get to that answer. But quitting drinking, the man I want to be doesn't want to drink. Losing weight, the man I want to be was healthy. You know, I wasn't allowed on a roller coaster at Harry Potter World. Like that's a moment in your life because it cannot safely accommodate your dimensions, sir. I I want to be the man I want to be 
wants to live up to the things that I offer to other people to help them. The man I want to be wants to pay attention to my relationships today and my health today and not let them be cluttered up by almost like just connections I have as opposed to friends. Mm -hmm. And Facebook was a lot of connections, not just friends. The man I want to be lives today in the best way possible. My health, my mental health, my friendships and my relationships. I'm going to make those choices today. And you need to focus to do that. And if you're dealing with an illness, you need to focus to deal with that illness so that you can add value to other people's lives. But you cannot add value to other people's lives until you've added enough value to your own. Oh, yeah. And it's not being self-absorbed and it's not being selfish. It's fundamentally realizing when you're empty, you have nothing to give. And I think we just have lost sight of the fact in some ways that taking care of ourselves takes focus. Mm. And like, let's create enough time for that focus. It reminds me of of the of the airplane um, the the video that they show you on the airplane when they go. Don't help anyone put on their mask until you've put oh, your put your <laughs> ears on first. Like it's a good because it's a great you can, analogy because you can you like you're, you're not, not gonna you're not be an helping effective human being right if you don't. Do and it's that. like you yeah. said, like it's I, the same I, thing. like I felt like I had to lose weight to to adequately or effectively or efficiently promote the message yeah. that I'm putting out there. Like I got to walk the walk Practice and you're not going to be able to do that efficiently and effectively until I take care of number one. Mm. And, and today, today, like this is day one. I mean, that's, that's my company, but the idea is this, you know, how I lost weight. I didn't worry about a year from now. I was like, what do I have to do today that if I strung together for 300 days in a row would make me lose weight? And I just worried about that today. Mm. And, you know, how do I not drink? Choose not to have a drink today. My number one priority, you know, to quote uh, a wonderful Aaron Sorkin episode, you know, my number one priority when I get up in the morning is don't have a drink today. And everything else comes after that. Mm. That's a great perspective. Chris, had, Chris Hadfield said the, uh, almost an identical thing the other day. We, we said, would you come out of retirement if they gave you the opportunity to walk on the moon? And he was like, well, fuck yeah. He didn't say fuck yeah, but he was like, he was like, he meant fuck yeah. Um, and he was, and he, he said that every decision that, you know, there's a, through his life, every decision that he had to, that he made was, is this getting me closer now to, to be the person that they asked to go walk on the moon? Oh. Is, is, is what I'm doing this weekend getting me closer to that? Is that making me more of the person they're going to go, you're the man, Ooh. you're the guy we Well, we want. spend so much time lamenting that we're not something as opposed to asking, am I doing what it takes to be that person? And uh, someone asked me, you know, what's, who's your hero? Because they talk about leadership. So what leaders do you look up to or what's your hero? That's such a hard question, man. Because mm-hmm. um, most of my heroes you've never heard of. Uh, I think most of our heroes we've never heard of. Like we like to pick names that you have, but your heroes yeah. are people that people have never heard of. Yeah, uh, except you, coaches. Yeah, it, it really teachers. is. But my hero is the guy I want to be. Like fuck, yeah. like that guy yeah. is awesome. And yeah. let me be clear, not that dude. But your hero has to be the person you want to be. Right. And so, what are you doing today to be a little bit more like that person? Someone's like, well, how do you be a leader? I'm like, well, when you're faced with a decision ask what would a great woman do and then do that. Mm-hmm. Like how many decisions in a row do you have to make at, using that as the criteria before you're a great woman or a great man? And 
like especially I can only imagine I, I, you know talk about people you know I, I work with Shinorama so folks will see mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's just like there's this perspective that comes when you're just like well I don't think like thinking long term can be a little silly sometimes it seems so what I do is what do I do today because I feel good today so what am I going to do today to, to, to make it worthwhile to be good yeah. and I think that if you figure out what you have to do on day one to that if you did a thousand times you'd get what you want then just worry about that doing that day mm-hmm. after day put enough of those days together if, if you treat every day like day one a thousand days from now it may seem like it's still day one but it will be a different day yeah. one like yeah. Yeah. that I think is, is really key that's a dope mantra man like that's cool you have that reminder with yeah. your company just to just to always go back to that a daily reminder well day we one. just changed the name so like, <laughs> it's uh, it's funny we named it uh, New Launch for a long time because my friend just said write down your favorite words and pick one for your company name because U of T owned the name I wanted to call it because if you come up with something at the university, they own it. And so Aruga oh, leadership didn't work and Gnocchi leadership didn't work. Did you say like, arugula? arugula? Can you <laughs> not say say arugula without going arugula? Uh, I, arugula? I have a different thought when I say arugula, but maybe it doesn't just... Maybe it doesn't need to be shared. Uh, <laughs> we we have to wrap it up. Oh, I'll um, tell you yeah. after. <laughs> um, but I feel like this. Like I feel like dude, this is not enough. Like I want so much more. Like I'm <laughs> just sitting here going, "This is such amazing real talk." Just to be like how to be a better human being, and like looking at yourself and looking at the things that the cards you've been dealt, and and just being like choosing to be better. I feel like this is one of those one of those conversations that a lot of people are going to uh, listen to and come out on the other end with a lot to just it's going to it's going to make it's going to make people just like we were just saying about the Facebook thing pull back and just assess like what's where am I at right now like, do reflection it's great well it's why it's such a cool podcast in that you're talking um, <clears throat> to people with a fundamentally different perspective <clears throat> on the world and I found that the, like. The best people for talking about resilience are the ones who've just like gone through crap, yeah. right? Because yeah. it's not hypothetical. It's mm-hmm. not, oh yeah, here's how I deal with. Because you're talking about like it's the cards you're dealt, but ultimately, okay, well, what do I do today in the face of whatever it is that yeah. I'm dealing with? And I think that when you you recognize that there's a part of you that's in some ways like what other people would think flawed or broken, you're like, well all I can do is make the best out of today and string a bunch of those together because there'll be days where I can't get out of bed. Yeah. Right. And uh, there are days where I can't get out of bed. Uh, it doesn't happen very often anymore. But when you have those days and once you've experienced what it's like to not be able to stand up and not be dizzy, once you've uh, had a day where you know, you know it's like to not want to puke all day long or able to get out of bed or, or not hate yourself all day, the days where that isn't the case, like you do shit with those days. Right. Yeah. And, the, the, like I'm really lucky that even with the things I've had to deal with, I had relatively fewer of those days than some people I know. But once you've had those days, you start to realize how great the days where you don't feel awful are, yeah. how great the days where you don't have to deal with these challenges are, and you try to make the most of them. And I think that the big, I say this to people over and over again, we hope to matter too often. Like stop hoping and start planning to matter. And plan to matter to yourself, plan to matter to other people, and execute that daily. And Mm. all the stuff that we're taught to treat as goals, money, jobs, respect, prestige, success, they're the natural byproducts that come from people who decide to 
to live each day like that. Mm-hmm. And instead, we treat money, jobs, respect as goals. They're not goals. They're byproducts. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Totally. Dude, I'm going to re-listen to this conversation like <laughs> so many times because I just feel like there's so much value here to to just constantly re- stay refreshed on and, and yeah. keep listening to. So thank you yeah. so much. Oh, for, so this much has been a blast. This is yeah. great. And hey, you. if you're ever in Halifax, uh, let us know. We would love yeah. to have you on the show again. I think it would yeah. just be fucking We'd love awesome. just to fucking just hang out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, I would too. Yeah. Halifax is the last place I had a drink. So. Uh, and, yeah. and, and alcoholics will tell you, some of us, that like that place always is a little bit scary. Little like bit I'm scary. not going to lie. Like, yeah. I, I'll go back to Halifax and I'll just be straight with people. Like you're f- afraid to go back and and stare in the eye who you used to be, yeah. and so sometimes you avoid the reminders of who you used to be, and that can be people and that can be places. Right. But I'll I'll be back because I love that place. Hey, when I was at my very very lowest, for all of your East Coast listeners, at my very lowest, when I was planning to hurt myself, it was Cape Breton Island that saved my life because I went out there for the first time in 2007 at the very, very lowest, thinking I can't do this anymore. And I drove the Cabot Trail, and I remember thinking, there's something about that place. Here's so, yeah. free Cape Breton uh, uh, tourism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something about this, that place that reminds you the world is bigger and more beautiful and more extraordinary than you thought. And sometimes when you feel stuck, just go somewhere different. Ooh, that's and why all the Donald Trump... Uh, yeah, they all want to go to Cape Breton. They all want to go right. to Cape Breton. There's a reason to go there. When you think it's the deepest, <laughs> darkest hole you'll ever be in, Cape Breton's Cape there, Breton to will Cape Breton be here. Is there to save you. Uh, dude, thank you so much. Oh, are you kidding? This, this is, is super awesome. This was, was a blast. Great. Thank was you great. so much. Uh, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, our Facebook page might be gone now, so follow us on Twitter. Facebook, uh, but we're still on Twitter and Instagram, so go check us out there. Uh, head on over to iTunes as well and give us a rating and a review because those help drastically. Rated uh, it's a and huge, review. huge thing. Thank you, thank you, Taylor. Uh, That's better. So yeah, that actually is much better than what you've been doing in the past. Um, <laughs> and Jennifer, call me. <laughs> That's it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor, and I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.